Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. Those of you who are online with us, we are glad to see you and know that you're here with us as well in spirit. For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we want you to know that you are a welcome guest and that we're thankful that you have taken time out of your busy life to spend these moments of worship together with, with us. So let me ask you a question. How many of you would say that you're keeping up with the latest fashion trends? Are you kind of trendy individuals? Uh, when I'm talking about trendy, well, you might be surprised you're probably more into it than you possibly may uh, think of, especially when it comes down to clothing styles or it comes down to hairstyles. For instance, when you think about hairstyles, you think about maybe Ed Kloppenstein or, or Gary Ingalls or Jerry McCormick. You know, they've got the Mr. Clean look and so forth. And so is that starting to catch on in our congregation? Uh, some of us are starting to get kind of close uh, to that. I might can maybe get away with that. Art Clark, that may be a little bit more of a challenge for you to go to that, that clean look. But there are those kinds of styles and hairstyles. There has styles when it comes down to the various uh, furnishing decors or maybe art, a house architecture, maybe even the colors inside the house. At one time, there's a lot of earthen tones, and now they're moving to more whites and, and grays and chrome, and eventually we'll go right back around to woods and to... Uh, brass and, and those things all over again, but those kinds of trends are constantly uh, changing. And never is that probably more true than when you think about the various uh, fashion styles in terms of clothes. Each generation tries to establish, you know, their own fashion statement. For instance, take all the way back to the 70s, you had the Cher Bono look where they're wearing the, the, you know, the, the bell bottoms is what they called them. I think they call them flares today, but they're wearing bell bottoms and they were wearing the long hair and it parted down uh, the middle. Or maybe it was the mini skirts that were there. Or maybe the guys were wearing polyester leisure suits as well as polyester pants that were bell bottomed and the bigger belts, platform shoes. That was the 70s and a lot more than just that. And then you move into the 80s, and in the 80s, you had the MC Hammer pants the guys were wearing, tucking them up and putting it over their, their socks. They were wearing mullets for hairstyles, crazy hair, Cindy Lauper kind of things. It was the, the boy band era. But anyway, the 80s were there. If you're wondering what the 80s really looked back, you might talk to Stephanie Coleman. She can tell you more about the 80s than maybe I, I could. Then there were the 90s. They were defined by the return to more of a more minimalistic kind of fashion. Lots of denim, denim jeans, denim uh, jackets. There were in those kinds of things. A notable, another notable shift was a mainstream into uh, tattooing and, and piercing uh, other than just the, your earlobes. So that became more of a vogue and really seems to be a fashion statement today as where you started to see tattoos and piercings all over the place today. As you move into the new millennium and uh, 2000, it's described as being a, a global mashup where trends all blend together. And I was talking to Caitlin Davidson and asked him, so what are the fashion statements today? Because I'm just not quite getting it. And she goes, well, it's all mashed together. They're using all kinds of different uh, clothing styles that are out there. There was a time that the way I tried to know what size lapels to have on a sport jacket or a suit jacket or how wide the tie was supposed to be was I could watch late night shows and kind of get an idea. But even now, the late night show guys, they're all over the place as well. And so 
the fashion statements are all out there. As you get into the middle of the 2020s uh, or, or the uh, 2000s, you see, you know, a kind of a backlash against uh, the 2010s fashions as they start to wrap together the 1980s and the 2000s. And they had the, the baggy pants that were way, uh, worn, uh, kind of like lowriders. You have the skinny jeans. You have guys wearing jackets that looks like they're one size or at least maybe two sizes too small. Those are the, the trends that are there when you talk about fashion statements. And then we had the real fashion statement of the 2020s, and that is the face mask. Of course, we're all hoping that that trend will go away pretty soon. But nevertheless, it becomes a little bit trendy, and everyone wears a different kind of mask, a different colored mask. People are getting really, you know, um, imaginary when it comes down to what the mask looks like on the, the outside, but that became a trend in 2020 and has carried on over into 20 and 21. What I'm saying to you is that fashion styles, they are always changing. They're constantly changing. And those who try to reset the fashion back to a bygone year, those who are in the industry, they'll say, well, listen, they just have no imagination. So they're trying to bring back the bell bottoms in terms of flares from the 70s into the 2000s, or they're trying to bring back Paisley. I didn't think we'd ever be wearing Paisley, you know, things again, but here Paisley is a, a now a big uh, fashion statement. And so you have those kinds of things. Well, like the fashion industry, society is constantly changing in terms of values and, and morals, even churches. They change when it comes down to various fashion statements of, uh, of how they see themselves and how they view themselves. But there's one area of, of life that doesn't change. In fact, if anything, it is constantly in need of a reset, of going back and resetting things to the way God originally in, intended them. Of course, I'm talking about resetting the church's fashion statement and how we view those things. And so this morning, the lesson is about the church's fashion. There are several things about the church that is, is constant, even though it goes through some, some changes. But looks can be deceiving, like wearing a clothing fashion. It really doesn't tell you what's underneath those clothes. It doesn't tell you necessarily what is in that person's heart and really what is important and what they really are about. Maybe to some degree, but not completely. And when you talk about churches, the same can be said. Looks can be deceiving. For instance, you can talk about, say, a huge, large church. And some might say, well, you know, those huge, large churches, they're unfriendly and they're, they're cold. They are a worshiping community. They come together, they do their hour together with one another, and then they go away and, they don't, and, and we'll see you next week maybe, but they're not close to one another, but they may be a really close. Or maybe like the little church that is behind me, you see it's out in the middle of the country, or maybe you see a church in your mind that is nestled in the trees and you think that must be a very warm and close church church they are a community of believers and that warmth is there among them but they might be fighting a lot on the inside they might have lots of issues or you have a church that is made of old you know of rocks you know and that church has ivy that is going up the side and in your mind you think well that church is a church that has survived a long time and so they must be extremely biblically based but it may be that they're not biblically based at all they just own an old church building with ivy growing up its side 
What I'm saying to you is that you're not, we're not always able to see what is below the surface, but there are various fashion trends within the church that remain constant. And I think that's what Jesus was trying to get to when he said these words that were both predictive as well as promising in Matthew, the 16th chapter, and in particular, verse 18. You remember, Jesus had come to Caesarea Philippi, and when he's in Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? How are people identifying me? And they said, well, some of them say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist or one of the prophets. He says, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you remember Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says this statement. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He is making a prediction. He says, I will build my church. He did build his church. And as it was mentioned just a few moments ago, as we gathered around the Lord's table almost 2,000 years ago, he built that church and it has lasted as a monument throughout this last two millenniums. Civilizations have come and gone. World powers have come and gone, but the church still remains. And then he made a promise. He said the gates of Hades cannot stand against it. That the church is alive and that it will possibly be pressing forward with the ministry and mission of Jesus Christ. And so there you have the church that is always going to be there. And so when Jesus talked about the church, he was not so much had in mind a place as he had in mind a people. In fact, the word church comes from a word that means to be called out or called out ones. We were called out of a world of lostness into that of being saved. We were called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. And as a church, as we as people, we stand as a monument that Jesus said, not even the demons of hell can overcome can override, can obliterate, or can destroy. We are those who are able to hang in there and stay in there because of the power that is living within us. In a small book by Walter Oetting, where he talked about uh, a book is called uh, The Church uh, in the Catacombs, or of the Catacombs, he said these words. If you had asked, where is the church in, the, in any important city of the ancient world where Christianity had penetrated in the first century, you would have been directed to a group of worshiping people gathered in a house. There was no special building or other tangible wealth with which to associate church, only people. Just people. That's what made up the church. It wasn't until you get into late into the second century before buildings are being built and people are gathering, assembling in. Before that, they were not there. Very, very, very few church buildings existed. So when Oeding talks about the church of the catacombs, you know, at the time you get into the fourth century, there was a great persecution upon the church, and churches were meeting in catacombs among dead uh, bodies. My point to you is this. The church is not so much a place or a building as it is people. Collectively speaking, people make up the church. And therein, to some degree, lies a problem. And that problem is, is this. People have a way of wanting to change the church in terms of its fashion, the way they want it to change. It's almost like a Rorschach uh, dot. You look at that Rorschach dot, that was Rorschach dot, which was used back in around 1921 when it was first 
presented by psychiatry, a person could look at that dot and you can decide what you think it looks like. So if I were to ask you, what, is that, what does this dot remind you of? You might say, well, it looks like a butterfly or it looks like a bird that's flying or it looks like a strong man that is standing and reaching his hands into the air. You can come up with all kinds of things. Well, guess what? People do that even when it comes down to the church. People can decide what the fashion of the church can, can be. They might say, well, what is it that the community wants? What is it that society wants? And let's make the church look like that. Or it could be, what do we think God wants? Or we might say, what do I want? And so we fashion a church. And when we start to fashion a church after our wants and our desires, we come up with changing how the church worships in style. We come up with how the church uh, brings a believer, uh, people into a relationship with Jesus Christ and to be born again. The plan of salvation uh, changes. Even when it comes down to church government, who is it that has authority or, or rules or at least leads the congregation? Even those kinds of things change. Even names of the church has changed. Today we have over 800 denominations in the world, all with different names. Where do they come up with those names? The vast, vast, vast majority didn't come up with them out of the Bible they decide what they wanted to name the church, and they named the church that, that thing. Jesus said, I will build my church. He owns the church. So you would think that even the name we wear would honor and glorify him in it. I'm just simply saying that it's easy to get caught up in fashion trends. And so from time to time, I believe we have to reset our fashion. So what is the fashion statement for the church in this year 2021 what should our fashion statement be well i think there are four that are constant and always will always remain with us and so if you'll open your bibles to first thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 we're going to kind of do an expository lesson where we look at what i call four fashions that are here the first fashion is this we are resetting we are resetting a fashion that is biblical there is a biblical content to what the church it remains it crosses all cultures it crosses all eras it crosses all millenniums or centuries or even decades it remains the same that is a biblical context or content verse 1 paul says for you yourselves know brethren that we uh, that our coming to you was not in vain the word vain means to be empty, uh, uh, to be without result, without profit. It is without effect. It does not reach its goal. And yet Paul, when he looked at that Thessalonican church, he saw a church that had purpose. He saw a church that was productive. He saw a church that was anything but empty and hollow. It was a church that was growing. You would think when you look at that passage of Scripture that that would be the honeymoon passage for the preacher that was there, right? But you'd be wrong because when you get down to verse 2 of that chapter there and you look at what he says, Paul said this, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness of our God to speak, the, to, speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So the church in Thessalonica was a church that was born in the midst of opposition, in the midst of difficulty. It was not an easy task for Paul to leave Philippi where he is persecuted and then come to Thessalonica. If you were to look at the first chapter, you'll see that the Thessalonican church, that it became an example to all those in Asia. 
they were not only living the gospel, they were extending the gospel beyond even them themselves. So there was a contagious fashion in the church at Thessalonica that had a biblical content to it. That is the gospel that was there. In fact, when you came to the church in Thessalonica, you heard the word of God. You didn't hear the opinions of the preacher. And if you did, it would be dismissed and they would go directly to the inspired word coming from the apostles. Verse 3, for our exhortation did not come from error or, uh, or impurity or by way of deceit. It was more about presenting the word of, of God to the people rather than trying to please the flock. They didn't put feelers out to see what is it that the church wants? What is it the church perceives? It simply taught, here's what the word of God says. Here's what God is saying uh, to you. Verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And so the word of God was not something that was falsified. Or, or was watered down in order to make it more appealing. That's going to hurt people's feelings. That's going to uh, cause some anxiety. That's going to cause some guilt. It's going, they didn't do that. They didn't try to water it down. They didn't sugarcoat it. They didn't uh, dilute it. They didn't try to sweeten it to the spiritual palate. They simply taught, here's what the Word of God uh, teaches and you have to decide how you're going to live with it and so they presented it in such a way that it was commended to them here it is this is what god says to you you need to be adhering to what god has to say and it wasn't a complicated message in fact it was simple when i say simple it's something that was understandable when i was in school and training to and, and being educated about one day possibly becoming a minister, I remember the one thing that the instructors kept saying over and over again is, fellas, you're to take a message that sometimes is hard to understand, and you're to make it understandable. You are to take it in such a way that they can get it, that even the children can go away sometimes repeating the things that you said, as well as the most educated, the most mature person will see that there's something there that is profound for them to take away. They use the acrostic kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Well, that's probably a good thing. And so the church was not, a, or so the word of God was not a complicated uh, matter. It was something that they could understand. Uh, over in second, or over in Second Timothy, the second chapter, in verse fifteen, there Paul says to Timothy, "Be diligent to study, to show yourselves approved uh, unto God as a workman who is does not need to be ashamed, but one who handles accurately." or rightly handles the word of truth. The word rightly handling or accurately handling literally means to cut straight. In the Septuagint from Proverbs, the third chapter, verse 6, it says, he will make the way straight. So the idea is that the word of God should be proclaimed in such a matter is that it's not unintelligible. It's something that is intelligible and that it resembles a straight a road. It's easy to follow. It doesn't have a lot of twists and turns in it. It's a straight road that you can follow down, and it's easy to comprehend and easy to understand. So the preacher is like a bridge builder seeking to span a gulf between God's, the word of God and the mind of, of man. Taking the word of God and saying, here's what it says, and here's how it can be applied 
to your life, or at least examples, and then you make the application. And it means that the preacher, such as myself, or any man who stands in the pulpit, or any person who is a teacher, that they do their utmost. They put in the time and the energy to make sure that they are interpreting the Scripture accurately and plainly so that they can apply it forcefully, but allows them to cross a bridge. And so if you were to sum it up, it would simply be the church that remains biblical in content will become known as a place that tells the truth, that establishes convictions on the bedrock of God's voice of authority and not shifting sands of human opinion. And that's what Paul, I think, was driving at when he told Timothy in the very twilight of his years, he said to him, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Why, Paul? Because the time will come when people will heap to themselves those who will tickle their ears. So the word of God is not about falsifying it or watering it down or making it more palatable or sweetened. It's about telling the truth. And a church that tells the truth is one that will have lasting legs to it. So the first fashion is that the church is biblical in its content. Here's the second fashion that I think we can see from this section, and that is it's authentic. Resetting a fashion that is authentic, a real faith that fits real life. So what does the word authentic mean? Well, when you think of the word authentic, words like real or genuine comes to mind. It's how a person is identified. It has to do with the idea of being reliable and, and trustworthy. What you see is, is what you get. And so if we call ourselves Christians, then we should walk like a Christian. Uh, we should act like a Christian. We should talk like a Christian. We should uh, follow the, the words of God in a very real kind of way. Look at verses 5 and 6 of our text, First Thessalonians chapter 2. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. And so Paul says, we didn't use a lot of, of flattery as a method of greed, uh, as a motivation. We didn't have to do that. We didn't come with you with trying to, you know, just make friends with everyone. We didn't try to tell you the things you wanted to hear. We didn't try to tickle your ears. We didn't try to flatter you. As a person, I tried to be an encourager. When I was in Loveland, we had an elder there named by, by the name of Keith Dart. Keith and I became great friends. But Keith was really leery of people who he thought were not maybe genuine or authentic. And so I would say something to Keith that would try to be encouraging him, and he would say to me, are you just trying to flatter me? Are you just flattering? And he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't smiling when he said it. He was really dead serious. Are you flattering me? What he was saying is, what do you want? What do you think you're going to get from doing this? And it wasn't until he saw that it was consistent uh, that he said that, that he discovered that it was not flattery. And so he would then accept the encouragement uh, that I would oftentimes give him because he's an incredibly great elder. That really is the truth. Paul didn't exploit the flock or, or use them for his own self-aggrandizement. That is, he didn't try to make himself something. He didn't try to even flatter himself. And so he didn't exploit the flock in that kind of way for his glory. In fact, because we did not come seeking any kind of glory. 
He refused to use the world's way of winning intimidation by pulling rank. He goes, we didn't even use the fact that we had the authority of an, as an apostle to tell you to do those things. We could have done that, but that's not how we did it. And so he didn't pull rank on them. Paul, he relied on the authenticity of the message. You heard the message. And that's why it did not come with vain. And that's why it was not empty, because you knew it was the authentic word of, of God. I like what Paul said over in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, verses 1 down through 5. He says, when we came to you, brethren, we did not come with superiority of speech or of, of wisdom. In a lot of cases, Paul, they said of Paul that he was not an eloquent man. He didn't think of himself as an eloquent man. But he said to them, we didn't come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I'm an apostle, but I was frightened when I got to Corinth. And if you know anything about the ancient culture of Corinth, you had good reason to be fear, fearsome and to be in, in trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power that your faith should not be resting in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So it wasn't important for Paul to be elevated. It was important for God to be elevated and that his word was seen as authoritative and authentic for them to listen to. So when you think about authenticity, uh, it occurs when real people say real things about real issues with real feelings. And when you go back to Paul's words here and you look at them, then you see it. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That takes a lot for him to say that. When you think of Paul, we see his boldness and we see him out there risking everything but he says, listen, when I got there, I would, there was weakness in me. I was fearful. I was, I was trembling. He is authentic. He's real with these, with these people. I'm not going to talk about that there. I just want to get over to this next thing because you want to go eat lunch eventually. So being authentic, a real faith that fits real life that's found in the scriptures. If you want to have an impact on those who are around you, you need to be authentic about who you are as a Christian and that you not only teach the word, but you live the word in your life. Here's a third fashion, resetting a fashion that is gracious. Look at verses 7 through 11. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden on any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you as you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children. There's a couple of parentheses here. One is the mother parenthesis that he begins at the beginning of this section. The other parenthesis is the father. So he talks about a family kind of relationship. And so the, the implication is that the church is a, a family and not a business. It's a family of people that were held together by common beliefs. So what were those common beliefs? They're common beliefs 
that Jesus is Lord and God, that he, he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he lives forever, that he wants to gather us to himself uh, one day, and that all this is done according to a common faith. That's the core. That's the core of who we are as a church. That's the fashion of the church. It isn't open to interpretation or opinion. It is something that is, it's a settled kind of thing. The question that we might ask as we work among one another and as even we reach out into the world would be, how do we deal with people who are struggling to understand the essence of the Christian faith? Or how are we to treat one another? And the answer is found in verses 7 through 11. And it's in the words with grace. We're gracious to those. We allow people to come from various walks of life that are mature in various degrees. Some are really babies. Some are very mature. But we recognize that among ourselves. And so we're always to be gracious with one another. In fact, as you look at the words of Paul here in this section, the words drip with gentleness and, and tolerance and compassion and tact and tenderness. And that's why he says, we came to you as a mother nursing her children. We came to you as a father would for his own children. And so if you know anything about being a mother or if you know about being a father, then you know that a mother and a father, they want the very best for their children. And that's how Paul was with the church. This is how you act with those who are struggling, with those who are doubting, with those who are, you know, seeing all kinds of obstacles and burdens in their lives. Paul says, that's how we came to you. We came to you in a very gracious manner. Carl Sandburg, um, a historian, he um, talked about Abraham Lincoln. And as he talked about Abraham Lincoln, he refers to Abraham Lincoln on February the 12th, 1959, as a man of steel and velvet. He writes these words that I thought were really interesting. He says, not often in the story of mankind does a man arrive on the earth who is both still and velvet, who has a heart as rock and soft as a drifting fog, who holds in his heart the mind the I'm sorry, the, uh, in his heart and mind, the paradox of a terrible storm and peace unspeakable and perfect. While the war winds howled, he insisted that the Mississippi was one river that was meant to belong to one country. While the luck of war wavered and broke and came again, as generals failed and campaigns were lost, he held enough forces together to raise new armies and supply them until generals were found who had made war as victorious War has always been made with terror, frightfulness, destruction, valor, and sacrifice past words of man to tell. In the mixed shame and blame of the immense wrongs of two clashing civilizations, often with nothing to say, he said nothing, slept not at all, and on occasion was seen to weep in a way that made weeping appropriate, decent, majestic. Abraham Lincoln in many ways, it was like Paul. Paul was a man like that. Paul was a man that was both still and velvet, just as men should be today, just as our congregation should be. We should be gracious people, recognizing that we are who we are, not because of any goodness of, that we deserve or because of any spiritually um, 
advantage that we have, but to recognize that we are who we are because of God's immense grace that he showers upon us on a daily basis. Like what this person said, you'll be surprised when you read who, or hear who it is that said it. Your graciousness is what carries you. It isn't how old you are or how young you are or how beautiful you are or how short your skirt is. What it is is what comes out of your heart. If you are gracious, you have won the game. Stevie Nicks said that from Fleetwood Mac. But I think she captures the idea of being gracious inside of you and how you treat people in wonderful kinds of ways. Number four is resetting the fashion that is irrelevant. Look at verses 12 and 13 of our text. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into, all, into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is also performs its work in you who believe. There's something relevant about that. The, the way we conduct our lives is no less than the way we conduct our, our worship. Our lives are being offered up to God as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God that we read about over in Romans, the 12th chapter and verse 1. That's how we conduct our worship. That's how we conduct our ministry. That's how we conduct our mission. Paul, he didn't compartmentalize the Christian life. Paul was what he was on Sunday, is what he was on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and on Saturday. Paul was always the same. What was unique about Paul's approach is that Christ penetrated every bit of it. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not, yet not I, but Christ. It penetrated his life. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you'll see that he didn't compartmentalize at, at all as well. Uh, Jesus penetrated life's streets and not so much its sanctuaries. He met politicians as politicians, beggars as beggars, blind as the blind, prostitutes as, as prostitutes. He met their needs in those uh, particular moments. He had time for people and was relevant in their lives. I like what George McLeod said as he wrote a poem called Taking the Cross Out of the Cathedral. And in the poem, he talks about how uh, we can't afford to leave Christ within the church building, but he has to be someone that is relevant in our lives that extends the mission and ministry beyond these four walls. I don't know if you can read that, so I'll read this for you. I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace, as well as on the steeple of the church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves on a town garbage heap at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. And at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble because that is where he died. And that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's men ought to be about and what the church people ought to be about. Taking a relevant message into the, the world. And so the fashions of the world are constantly changing. In fact, we're living in an ever-changing world. To be honest with you, I don't know why anyone in terms of clothing fashion would ever want to go back to the 1970s or the 80s or probably the 90s. And I'm not so sure if I'm really crazy about even the, the new millennium. But the world is ever-changing in so many different areas of life. 
But the fashion of the church always remains the same. We're always to be biblical. We're always to be authentic. We're always to be gracious. And we're always to be relevant. And from time to time, we have to reset and remind ourselves about what our true fashion is. That the church's mission is to take a never-changing gospel to an ever-changing world. And in doing that, we'll be the church that God would intend for us to be and the one that Jesus built that is fashionable for any age and any culture and for all generations until he one day comes again. So may God bless you as you think about these four fashion statements and ask yourselves, are these part of my life? Do they regulate uh, my life? While together we stand and while we sing, and you respond if you feel the need to do so at this time.